Hi everyone, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us live from the uh, Caribbean islands, I believe, is Terry Roach. She's a very famous singer, songwriter, guitar player, teacher, author, innkeeper, and founding member of the trio The Roaches. She has performed in many clubs and concert halls throughout the United States and Europe and appeared on numerous TV shows over the course of her 45-year career, including working with Paul Simon, Philip Glass, Linda Ronstad, and many, many more significant artists. I am personally a fan of her music, so it's a little awkward to interview her today, but I'm going to try to maintain my professional composure. So, Terry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. And thanks for having me. And thanks for that wonderful introduction. (laughs) It's my pleasure. And uh, what's kind of cool is people can just Google your name and there will be like tons of information. So I'm not going to spend too much time on background information. As long as they spell it properly. I have an odd spelling to my name. It's T-E-R-R-E-R-O-C-H-E. And apparently in French, that is Earth Rock. (laughs) That's so awesome. I'm not French, but I named my record company Earth Rock for that reason. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And did your parents like have any inkling of that or was that just a total coincidence? No, my name, they gave me the name Teresa, uh, you know, named after uh, Teresa the Saint, the little flower. And then, you know, everyone called me Terry. And then when I was a teenager, I changed the spelling because people were calling me Ter instead of Terry. So I changed the spelling over, but people went back to calling me Terry and I never changed the spelling back. That's cool. That's really cool. It's interesting. I mean, so we have a mutual friend who very, very, very sadly passed away earlier this year. And I knew of you through her and my mom for like decades. And it was always like, oh, her famous friend, you know, and it was just kind of funny. It was like an ongoing joke that I was two degrees separated or something. But I am curious, when you review your own life and your own career, does it feel like it was luck and providence and chance? Or does it feel like it was uh, something you really sought for? Like, can you kind of walk our audience through that magical moment where you go from, hey, I'm a person who loves music to I'm actually a performer and I'm on television and I'm somewhat famous? Well, that's actually, in my case, kind of an interesting story because, um, you know, a lot of the people I know who, Uh, became performers professionally had a big desire about it when they were a kid you know like oh I want to go to New York and get on Broadway or I want to be on TV I had no desire at all in that direction Um, I wanted to work with animals which of course you know is a big was a big bond between me and Judy our, our mutual friend But my older sister, when we were 11 and 12 years old, was right around when the Beatles came out. We we both learned how to play the guitar from from a TV show about how to play folk music. So we, we both learned how to play these chords, you know, on the TV. And she immediately started writing. And she had a real, like, almost otherworldly talent for writing a song even though there had been no musical instruction in our home at all you know um so she had these songs and she also had a great ear for harmony so she would force me to learn the melodies and she would do these counterpoint harmonies and and then i got interested in playing second guitar to her songs 
and and we played together for you know uh like about five years before or maybe yeah about that long before we got hired discovered and hired to go on tour to colleges all over the country so i was kind of like you know the adventure of getting to leave high school you know it would have been my senior year i spent my senior year you know traveling around the United States with my sister Maggie, playing six nights a week in the student unions at all these colleges. And this was 1970, so there was no internet or, and we had never been anywhere. We had not traveled, you know, much. We grew up in New Jersey, but all of a sudden we're going all over the country and that to me was what really kind of hooked me <laughs> on a life of doing music was that adventure of, wow, this can take you. I don't know if working with animals would do this, but music is quite a magic carpet ride here. <laughs> <laughs> that is truly incredible. And um, I mean, I know it's, it's been like 45 years, so you're, you've adjusted, you're used to it and everything. Was there ever like for you, like a moment where you kind of had to like, talk your own ego down or quite the opposite, talk it up. Like I can actually do this. I don't have imposter syndrome. Well, actually, you know, it's interesting that you are mentioning that because, and now I'm going to talk about, I'm reading this book called Dancing with the Gods, Reflections on Life and Art by a guy named Kent Nurburn. And this book it's all about, it's, it's his, he's in his 80s, I get, no, maybe late 70s. Uh, and I'm right behind him, actually. <laughs> it's all about, he, he's talking to someone who's a young person who wants to know, who's wrestling with whether to go into the arts as a life's work, you know. And this book, I, I'm finding it having spent most of my life in the in an art, one of the arts i'm finding the book fascinating because i realized that you know he, he talks a lot about things like the rejection that you are going to encounter you know the first time you're actually booed off the stage and people throw things at you when you, you know, go to sing your very personal song that you wrote about yourself you know, so he addresses these kind of things and he really addresses them, I think, very intelligently because he's not judgmental about whether you decide not to do this. You know, it's perfectly okay to play music because you love to do that. You don't have to put it in the professional arena. And there are certain um, advantages to doing it professionally, and that is that you're going to do it with all your might, all, all your time. And the other, you know, you, instead of splitting yourself between some other profession and the music. So there's lots of questions, you know, for a person about ask yourself, what kind of person are you in terms of music? You know, are you somebody that wants to make certain sacrifices, a lot of them being financial, you know, and then also are you interested in opening up this love of music for other people to experience. Did I answer your question, Mike? 
you absolutely did. Um, I mean, I, I wanted to also hear from your side, just was there ever a moment like either early on or even midway through where you felt either like I don't deserve this or you had to tell yourself, hey, 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 I know you're a big deal, but like, you know, make sure you're still nice to people and all that. Uh, you know, now you're you're obviously fine. So I'm asking this without any worry. No, I never got to the stature where I could really be nasty to people. I kind of wish I had, but <laughs> that, that didn't happen in my case. <laughs> I wasn't that big a deal, you know, uh-huh. but I would say that the, the whole ride was a roller coaster. You know, like you're you're at the top of your game, you know, in terms of your own powers, you're getting great reviews, you're on the TV, you're playing, you know, your concerts are sold out, you know, and then the next year, uh, you're, you've got to come up with your next album. And that one might not do as well as the last one. And you might not be playing those same size venues, you know. And then something might happen and you're back in the uh, highlight, you know. I mean, it's an it's a roller coaster, I think. Yeah, totally. And kind of speaking of that, because it was like 1970 when you guys started to like, you know, really hit all those stages and stuff. What was it like not only being a woman, but being young? Was it a lecherous, scary community that you had to be on guard against? Or was it pretty fine and everything was just fun? Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. You know, it's it's very interesting question, Mike. Uh, and in fact, it's very relevant to this project that I'm about to release, which is a uh, an album that's also going to be a book of my sister Maggie and I and the arrangements that we did back when we were teenagers. Someone sent me some live recordings of us doing these songs, doing that repertoire. And so it's brought me back into the experience. And I really have been working on this for a couple of years now, interviewing people who worked with us, going back and dealing with what this experience was. And at one point, there was a company in England that was interested in possibly doing an audiobook of this whole story of me and Maggie as teenagers, women traveling by themselves around the United States in 1970. And this person in London there, he said to me, you know, maybe we could tie this into the Me Too movement. You know, maybe we could, like, could, could, would you be open to talking about experiences you've had where you were sexually uh, harassed as young women? And I, <laughs> I couldn't think of any. <laughs> you know, I would say that we were we were working in the 1970s in a very male-dominated. Um, profession, you know, the music thing. And we had to fight to play our own instruments on our own arrangements. You know, we we put out a record in 1975 that was uh, in part produced by Paul Simon. It was called Seductive Reasoning, and it was on Columbia Records. And we had, that was an uphill battle for us artistically. It, it wasn't like anyone was sexually, you know, harassing us but 
we had to insist that we play our own guitars. And the reason for that, it wasn't because we were difficult. It was because we only knew how to do that. We had never played with a band. We'd never played with other people. And we had these arrangements that were pretty locked in. Guitar and, you know, two guitars, two voices, and Maggie played piano. And we were like real locked in with these arrangements. So we we had to uh, battle it out. Um, the project got, you know, in trouble a couple times, you know, where we were sort of sent back into the studio to try again because there was a lot of pressure at that point to get on the radio, on the AM radio. In fact, one of the tracks on this record was produced by Paul Simon and he played the guitar. This is the one that we did not play on. And he was really trying to make a, you know, a, a hit record, which is something that he really knew how to do. And it was fascinating to watch him work. We were working down in Muscle Shoals with the Muscle Shoals Swampers <laughs> who made lots of hit records. And, um, you know, so watching him take one of our songs and go through this whole process and come out with this very commercial sounding thing, you know, was, was a real, we learned a lot, you know. So I would say that in terms of being, being women, when I look back on it, I realized that this was previous to like Lilith Fair and a lot of the people who came in the 80s, who came after this, didn't have to fight about playing their own music, you know? So hey, that was a, definitely a, a factor that I notice more now than I did then. Yeah, wow, that's that's so amazing. I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating. I, I was a musician, I never got far, but I never got booed off a stage or yelled at. It was more just like playing for 10 people in a club is embarrassing and weird, um, but it was, uh, it was certainly fun and totally worth it. And we did end up getting to record and it, it's just, so amazing to hear like the other side of it where you're trying to like really get on the radio and do it. And then, and then of course you did accomplish all that. And I'm, I, I don't think I'm ramrodding this into the next question, but I, I am hopeful to hear like, is there any part of you that is spiritual first of all? And then if so, do you link any of that with any of the success in your career? I would say Mike, actually that the bedrock of my existence is very spiritual actually you know, and all of the things that I do kind of grows out of that, whatever, you know, my understanding of spiritual is that it's, you know, of the spirit world, you know, it's the mystery of life, you know, the, the thing we don't really know about what we're doing here. And um, I would say that's probably my main preoccupation is thinking about those things. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and then I took uh, Buddhist refuge vows and was part of a Buddhist community for 20 years. And um, at this point, I'm kind of floating free. You got any ideas? <laughs> Well, I would like to know what you think is going to happen when your floating free body perishes. And uh, do you think anything is after that? Well, you know, it's very interesting you say this because our mutual friend, Judy, who I have to say was my very best girlfriend uh, for many years. She, you know, we, our relationship, I don't know if you heard about much about it, but it began when we first met, we met 
riding horses. We went to a barn, you know, we met at a barn where we were both riding horses. And the first time we ever went out like to dinner as friends, Judy saved my life. This was in New York City on 6th Avenue and 8th Street. And we're standing there saying goodnight to each other. And she suddenly grabs my arm and pulls me. And a car had come up on the sidewalk and ran over my leg. So we spent the night in the uh, emergency room with me, you know, and, <laughs> and that was the beginning of our relationship was that she saved my life. And you, and you would appreciate this knowing Judy, because whenever I would tell this story to people, She'd say, oh, I didn't save your life. You know, <laughs> she said, I wish I would. I wish I had been faster and you wouldn't have had your leg broken. You know, she would downplay what that was. Whereas for me, that was a, a very, it was a life changing event, of course. And then it was also a very spiritual connection to Judy. And your mom sent me some of Judy's ashes to sprinkle down here in the Caribbean. She visited me many times here, and we went swimming in the bays and stuff. And so the other day on her birthday, which was the 28th of July, I took the ashes down to one of my favorite beaches, Francis Bay, and I... um. I sprinkle. I went swimming with Judy for the last time. I went in with the little bottle. Your mom had put the ashes in this little bottle, which made me laugh because it was from Walgreens. It was like a little <laughs> like pill box from Walgreens with the ashes. And I just went into the water and I said the prayer of St. Francis. I don't know if you're familiar with that prayer. I am, and I love it. It's one of my absolute favorites, yeah. Okay, so the first thing, so you'll appreciate, the first thing I did was I was sitting on the beach, and I said the prayer. Um, and then I got in the water and uh, started swimming around with the ashes, and they didn't come out of the bo bottle immediately. I was surprised. But when I got to the word joy in the prayer... Because I started to say it again in my head, you know, all the ashes came flying out on that word. So you can bear that in mind as I recite the poem. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that I may not seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in forgiving that we are forgiven. And it is in dying that we're born to eternal life. And I'm clapping for you, but quietly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that prayer. You know, I, I had a thing about St. Francis as a kid. I took the name Francis for my confirmation name. And um, <laughs> I've just always had a thing about this. And this part here, you, you're probably going to find this kind of maybe as if I'm making it up. But after the day that Judy uh, saved my life, 
you know, and now I'm in the hospital with this broken leg and which was broken in seven places. And, and a couple of days after this happened, I realized that it had happened on October 4th, which is the feast of St. Francis. Wow. I, oh, I love stuff like that. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. So that seemed like the right thing for Judy's ashes. That's, I'm so glad you share that. And not just with me, but with our audience. And I, you know, I've mentioned her a little bit on this and a lot of my essays I, I've reflected on her. So um, I called her Aunt Judy and, and it, I knew you were like as close, as thick as thieves. Um, and I didn't know that she was visiting you there. That's such an interesting, like all these pieces are coming together from this interview and it's really cool. But I think the, the Francis thing is, is so cool because I, I didn't really, I was not raised at all Christian. I was raised Jewish, if anything, but really just non-dominational. And I discovered St. Francis because I'm an animal lover like you and like Judy. And then lo and behold, I'm from San Francisco and that's named after him. And I didn't know that. So it was kind of cool to full circle fall into that. And I think that he is without any doubt in the Western Judeo world, the one person who stands out because he's centuries and centuries later and he's actually walking the walk. And, you know, and, and so I love that prayer and, and thank you. Real quick, you you sort of answered the question through allegory, but do you have an actual like specific fantasy or or real belief in like what's going to happen to you when you die? I wish I did, Mike. You know what I mean? Like I I kind of I kind of envy people that are so sure. Like my mother, she had this whole scenario in which she was going to be she died in 2017 when she was 94 years old. And she had this whole thing where she was going to, you know, uh, be reunited with her mother and her father and brothers and sisters and my father, her, you know, her husband. You know, she was so sure of herself with what was going to happen. And we had lots of conversations about it. Right up until a couple days before she died, she was very sharp. And we were sitting at her kitchen table and she looked at me and she said, I just don't know how to do this. And I said, you mean dying? And she said, yes, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I, I thought that was such a great, because she was always project oriented, you know, like she was a writer and she, you draw a picture or you write something or you do something. And so I said to her, I can't help you with that. <laughs> you're, you're ahead of me on the roller coaster here. That's cool. That's really special. And that's awesome that you got to share that experience. And, uh, you know, I think as I am in the middle of my life at like my I'm 41, you know, I, I don't look forward to these moments. But I also know that like, that's the natural order of things is to comfort our parents who were once the people comforting us, tucking us in bed and all that. So that's, it's beautiful to me that you were there for her that way. I, I, I am curious with, with music, but it's not really related to like your career, but more as just a musician. Do you find that songs you've written get stuck in your ear and they just like come into your mind sometimes? Like, do you have any like haunting melodies that you've written or is it more like other people's songs? No, constantly. I would say that my own songs are, I'd stop short of saying they're torturing me, but they're constantly running in my head. And, you know, there are situations I'll be in and certain snippets of a song will pop into my head and I'll be kind of like, wow, you know, I kind of nailed that feeling with that song. <laughs> You know, I feel in many ways, I think your own songs, and you might find this as well. I think in many ways, you're speaking to yourself primarily. That's totally why I asked. Yeah, because I've had like, especially when you were referencing that author, 
I did try to make it professionally in music, but one of the reasons I was able to quit is I was like, oh, well, I have a canon of music I've recorded. I love it all, and I'm proud of it, and I like it, and you know, I can still listen to it to this day. And so I wasn't making it for other people. I was totally making it for myself, which is fascinating to me because of my, my ego was certainly not telling me that at the time, and I was certainly not listening to that. And, you know, a professional career often, to me, when I look at my friends who have had careers and myself, a lot of times it seems like karma. You know, you were in the right place at the right time. And then the next thing you know, you're on TV. Yeah. And that's what I was actually curious about. I think there's like two kinds of people who quote unquote, make it in any entertainment profession. And there's the kind who says, I did this on my own. I deserved it. I claim it. And then there's the people who are like, you know, hey, look, I'm lucky, right place, right time and all that. And I'm always curious when I meet people because I actually respect both answers. I have no judgment of either, but it's it's interesting to hear the different versions of it all. And with that said, I'm curious, what song do you think is the best song for someone to like listen to to understand your career or like what is like the song that stands out to you the most is there one oh there's well that's kind of like asking about children a little bit (laughs) you know in the sense that there's there's a bunch of them for different reasons but for some reason i always tell people when they ask me what's my favorite of my songs i wrote a song called Christlike. And it's one of only two songs that I wrote on the piano instead of the guitar. It was on one of the Roaches records. And then there's a beautiful video of a song that I wrote called Everyone Is Good, which is something that I can't really say I know if I believe in, but it's a beautiful video. And that's on YouTube. That was a song I wrote after a conversation I had with my father in which we were basically gossiping about everyone in the family. And my phone answering machine recorded the whole thing. And so I sat down and wrote this song fairly quickly. Everyone is good. Almost like I was trying to balance out the conversation that we were having where we were basically talking about everybody we knew and what was wrong with them and what they should do differently. And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I think my, my, my next question, my last kind of like fanboy question for you is what's the song that fans seem to like the most that you're the most tired of playing slash hearing, but yet you still have to perform? Um, Well, actually, you know, I don't do as much performing as I used to do. And I have to say, I never got tired of any of the songs because the audience that you're playing for and the situation that you're in is never the same, you know. So from night to night, you might have a whole different experience of this song based on the people who are there. If you really plug into... Uh, stay inside the music. My feeling is that if I stay inside the music, that's the only way I can take people along with me. If I get too uh, blasé or like, oh, geez, I'm only playing in this town. You know, I wish we were playing in New York, you know, where I know all these people. You know what I mean? Like, it's more like every time you step on that stage, every time you go into the song, you want to place yourself inside of it and if you 
do that. You don't get bored. I don't. Yeah. No, that's great. That's awesome. Cool. Then I'm not going to be embarrassed or afraid to tell you that I love the song Hammond song the most. And I, I just absolutely, I can listen to it on repeat for like an hour. Well, thank, thank, thank you very much. My sister Maggie wrote that actually. And that I would have to say that's probably the most popular song of the Roach. <laughs> that's why I felt embarrassed. No, no. I mean, nothing to be embarrassed about, but you know, I don't know. Do you know a group called the Avalanches? Uh, no, I don't. Yeah, well, they're apparently very popular. And they and if you Google the Avalanches at Glastonbury Festival a couple weeks ago, they actually used the Hammond song in a song of theirs. Oh, cool. And they contacted us a few years ago asking if they could license that song. And the way in which they used it in their song, they, they titled their song, We'll Always Love You, which, as you know, is one of the lines in the Hammond song. But they did a whole number at the Glastonbury Festival where they projected on the screen behind them the story of the roaches who wrote this song. And that was thrilling to see because there were thousands of people singing along with them. And I thought, wow, you know, Maggie, who is, you know, who died in 2017, if she had seen this stadium full of people singing along with her song, you know, that's the thing about songs and music is they go somewhere that you never know where they're going to wind up. Yeah. That's cool. And I should uh, just let you know that I am uh, completely out of touch with all things cool. And so I, I did Google their name and they're incredibly popular. So I just think that's funny. Yeah. Well, actually, Mike, I didn't know who they were either. When they contacted us and asked us to do this, someone else told me, oh, they're a very popular group, you know. So, uh, you know, these days there are so many things that are popular that you don't need to feel bad that you never heard of something. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's actually a, a really good like meta observation for where we're heading because it, it like used to everything was one radio AM FM bandwidth you know three three television stations from an antenna then we got cable and, and now it's just streaming internet every every private small band photographer writer you know all these things you you have your chance to just put your stuff out there so I think it's beautiful but I do think all of us can collectively kind of lower our expectations for like have you heard of this show have you heard of that movie so i'm glad you you see that absolutely and we are approaching the end of the interview but i always give my guests the floor and i encourage you to just say whatever it is you want to say oh, oh oh great thank you well mike i would like to say that first of all this has really been a pleasure to get to talk about my friend judy especially this week or on her birthday and I feel very close to your mom because we were, you know, kind of connected into the same person in a very deep way. And I'd, I've never done an interview in which I've been able to talk about something like that. Uh, so I really appreciate the opportunity to do that. And, you know, when you talk about spiritual, she she's now in the spirit world, if there is such a thing. And I find myself consulting her, you know asking her about things and so the subject matter of your podcast is is perfect for me this week and i thank you that's awesome yeah and it is um it's it's special there's something about we all gotta go we're all gonna go and i think you know getting sad about it is fine and grieving is absolutely necessary but i also think connecting and sharing and loving the memory of the person 
not only after they're gone but as they're going is important so like likewise i just feel so great and buoyant having talked to you today and then also just leading up to this and it's cool it's cool to finally connect so many of like this amazing strange weird aunt judy of mine who like was a pretty darn private person yes and and also mike the i don't know if you remember but the reason we're doing this interview is because i had sent judy that little rabbit and then it came back to me undelivered and i thought to send it to alice that's right and that's how we wound up getting connected yeah and my wife is listening to this right now because she's our producer and i'm sure she's grinning ear to ear but yeah and she, she loves that bunny and I, i'm so appreciative um and i'm glad that you're spiritual and i'm glad that it's the bedrock because that's how i am and i love that word because it's vague and i like keeping it vague i like just to let people experience and breathe and feel what they want to feel so um thank you so much for coming on our show you you're an incredible person you're also an incredible musician you're also an incredible writer and uh i wish you even more success than you've already had and i will be sure to put up notes in the bio and everything for people to find you and for everyone listening at home once again if you want to help support the podcast we really can use your support we'd love people to just subscribe to it uh leave us a positive review on either spotify or apple and then if you want to go the extra mile head over to mikeyop.com m-i-k-e-y-o-p-p.com and sign up for free to the uh weekly emails that come out to announce the podcast as well as other cool exciting events and uh to everyone who's not going to do any of that we still love you don't worry about it and we'll see you soon Thank you.